Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Global Stage. We are Laura Lopez Perez and Mayra Ortiz-Ocaña, PhD students in political science. We are pleased to have Guillermo Trejo as a guest today. Guillermo is a professor of political science and a faculty fellow at the Kellogg Institute. Guillermo's research focuses on political and criminal violence, social movements, human rights, and transitional justice. He is the director of the Violence and Transitional Justice Lab at the Kellogg Institute. Recently, Guillermo and Sandra Ley published the book Boats, Drugs, and Violence, The Political Logic of Criminal Wars in Mexico, which will be the focus of our conversation today. Guillermo, welcome to the program and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mayra. Thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here and thank you to the Kellogg Institute for supporting this amazing initiative. Thank you, Guillermo. So first, let's start our conversation by covering the basics of the theory laid out in your book. One of the book's main contributions is questioning the classic concept of the state as a sphere separated from crime. Instead, you theorize how members of the state and organized criminal groups come together in the gray zone of criminality. Could you explain to the audience what do you mean when you talk about this gray zone of criminality? Yes, absolutely. One of the problems in many countries like Mexico experiencing large-scale criminal violence is that we have a very hard time naming and conceptualizing the groups, the structures, and uh, even the violence that is taking place. So when Sandale and I, we set out to conduct this research, it became very clear very quickly that we had to rethink some of the key categories and concepts that we've been using in the study of organized crime for nearly two centuries. So for us, the idea that crime and the state belong to different spheres, that the relationship between state and crime was one zero-sum relationship in which the greater the state presence, the weaker organized crime would be, was faulty, and it didn't reflect realities on the ground. So the book begins by reconceptualizing and renaming organized crime. We typically think of organized crime as a non-state private entity. There's many books that go on by saying that when common crime reaches a level of organization that mirrors the private sector, they become organized crime. We're defining that idea for us. One of the crucial elements is the engagement with the state. As a matter of fact, organized crime is constituted by the close engagement and interaction between criminal groups and state actors, and most specifically with uh, what we call specialists in violence, members of the army, of the armed forces, members of the police, members of the secret service, members of the judicial system. So for us, organized crime is possible in what we call the gray zone of criminality. The gray zone of criminality is that area of intersection between the state and crime. And we do make a strong ontological statement. For us, organized crime is possible and exists only to the extent 
that criminal organizations have a deep engagement with state actors, specifically with specialists in violence. And these type of engagements exist in democracies and in autocracies. But something we claim in the book is that they generally arise in the context of authoritarian regimes in which state specialists in violence, members of the military and the police, have um, a free check to repress. But when they become extremely powerful, autocratic leaders have this dilemma of how to prevent them from taking over power. And uh, they often allow them to secure the loyalty. They allow them to engage in the criminal underworld. That's why these gray zones of criminality tend to be extremely large and they become constituted in autocracies. Following that point in your book, when in yours and Sandra Lee's book, You start asking why, after transitioning to democracy, we observed the outbreak of criminal wars and large-scale criminal violence in Mexico. And then you develop a theory of criminal violence in weak democracies that offers an explanation of how democratic politics and the fragmentation of power shaped cartels' incentives for war. Can you explain to us how democratization led to criminal wars in Mexico? Yes, indeed. Generally, the big dilemma for Mexico and for all countries that transition from authoritarian rule to democracy is that over the course of authoritarian governance, many of these state specialists in violence not only have a history of repression, but they have a history, a long history of engagement in the criminal underworld, in the gray zone of criminality. And there's examples from all over the world in autocracies. But if you look at Brazil in the 1960s and 70s or Peru in the 90s or Bolivia in the 1970s and 80s, or Panama in the 80s, you name it. Mexico developed a very robust gray zone of criminality during the dirty war in the 1970s when the armed forces and the police were fighting against student movements and armed rebel groups in rural and urban areas. And they were allowed to take advantage of the information and the force they had to actually engage with drug trafficking. So Mexico, by the time of transition in the in the year 2000, had a, a pretty large and thick gray zone of criminality. One of the scope conditions of the book is what new or post-authoritarian elites do at the time of transition with a long history of repression is actually crucial to define the post-authoritarian trajectories of peace or violence. So when countries like Mexico, Brazil or Honduras ignore repressive history and do not engage in transitional justice, they open possibilities for the morphing of these state specialists in violence and criminal networks into new democracies. But when countries actually adopt transitional justice processes, remove the military from public security, they follow very different paths. Those are the cases of Argentina, Chile, or Peru. So the first scope condition is that Mexico transitioned to democracy with an authoritarian military, with authoritarian police forces, with authoritarian public prosecutor's offices, and so on and so forth. Mexico had a very thin transition to democracy, transition from one-party rule to multi-party elections. And what the book documents is how different mechanisms of democracy, including party alternation in office, which is the essence of uh, electoral democracy, or political plurality, or the fragmentation of political power, or, or the decentralization of political power, becomes very quickly intertwined and becomes a trigger of violence. So very quickly, there's two things that we show with statistical and qualitative evidence. The first is that as soon as Mexico started experiencing subnational party alternation, 
That introduced the rotation of parties in office and the naming of new police chiefs created lots of uncertainty in the criminal underworld. And uh, cartels went on to create their own private armies. And as soon as they had secured their turf, they had this uh, greed, this ambition to actually conquer rival territory. So we saw in Mexico a subnational party alternation spread throughout the country. We saw the outbreak of criminal wars throughout the territory. And the second element that we highlight in the book is that within democracy, six years into democracy, President Felipe Calderón deployed the army, declared war on the cartels, but he did it with an army that had not been reformed, with authoritarian police forces, and the president, as it had happened during authoritarian rule, had full control over the public prosecutor's office and the judiciary more generally. So the war on drugs became very quickly politicized and uh, cartels understood that politicization by which the president cooperated and uh, protected in this war his co-partisans, but went and politicized the war against his rivals, particularly his leftist rivals. And as a result, what we see is a tremendous growth in different forms of violence in subnational areas governed by the left. So in some party decentralization and the decentralization of political power, rather than becoming a good element in democracy, became a trigger for violence. We would like to put the book's findings in today's perspective. As of today, the war between the state and criminal groups and among criminal groups continues in Mexico. And you were just telling us how the war on drugs became politicized in Mexico. You show evidence of how during the term of Felipe Calderón, the country was highly polarized and how crackdown strategies on cartels from federal state forces were uncoordinated in states with governors from political parties different to PAN, especially leftist parties. So do you think today the state strategies still follow a partisan logic? That's actually a very good question, and we would need to wait until the end of the current leftist administration. In 2018, the left was elected to office, a leftist president was elected to office for the first time in Mexico's history. Mm. It's a president who's on many dimensions shifted to the center and to the right. So many people would question whether it's a leftist administration still, specifically because of its political alliance with the military. What we could say, based on the book's findings, is that because many many of the macro structures that facilitated the politicization of the deployment of the army, policing in general, and the use of the judiciary, it is very likely that under the current presidential administration, and I insist this is at this point a hypothesis, but it's very likely that the president is using the National Guard and the deployment of the military with a partisan logic. The other reason why this is likely to be the case is that, indeed, as you say, Laura, polarization in 2006, after the very contested presidential election, in a context of elite polarization, not mass polarization at the time, led the president to politicize the war on drugs and to punish his political enemies and to work mostly with uh, his co-partisans. If you fast forward from 2016, 2018, Mexico has gone from elite polarization to mass polarization to effective polarization. So in work that we do at the VTJ lab with Nathan Skiging, 
we ran a survey and we got evidence using the same tools that public opinion experts in the U.S. Uh, use to measure polarization. Levels of polarization, affective polarization in Mexico are as acute as they are in the U.S. So these are very polarized societies in which people from one party would not go to the cinema or would not play basketball with members of the other political party, or even date members of the other political party. And this is something that we see among leftist voters, but also right-wing voters. So the reason why we would expect the politicization of public security in Mexico is not only because elites are polarized, because masses are polarized, but also because of affective polarization. And this is something that the electorate would expect the president to be working only with co-partisans and to be punishing those who are not members of the party. So we still need to wait. We'll need to do research in, in a few years. But again, the more protracted these wars are, and Mexico has been experiencing multiple wars, even though they're not uh, fully recognized outside, but criminal wars for more than 15 years. And if we concentrate only on intercartel wars, it's been three decades. Anything that happens in the political system in terms of party alternation, in terms of the decentralization of political power, but more so the polarization at different levels of the elites and the electorate, all this informs, shapes what happens in the gray zone of criminality and as a result provides incentives for the deepening and the intensification of violence, which is something that we've seen, unfortunately, in recent years. Well, following some of the answers you gave, Mexico has progressively taken a heavily militarized approach to fighting organized crime. After 15 years, do you believe these strategies are related to the persistence of large-scale violence? That's also a question that is actually quite relevant for Mexico, but for many other countries, including the U.S., the use of Iron Fist policies to deal with different forms of crime and even with street gangs, drug cartels, different types of criminal organizations is pervasive. There is extensive academic evidence across countries and within countries that the use of uh, militarized iron fist policies is counterproductive. In Mexico, there's extensive evidence that the use of the military to confront drug cartels through war And uh, let's keep in mind that this is the same military and the same armed forces that confronted rebel groups during the Dirty War. And uh, part of the problem is the persistence of the counterinsurgency playbook that was developed in the 1970s in the midst of the Cold War that was used in Mexico, but was also used by militaries all over the region. In countries without a transitional justice process like Mexico, that counterinsurgency playbook remains alive and active. So when the military was deployed in 2006, it was the same military forces that had committed atrocities, massacres, forced disappearances, extrajudicial executions uh, in the 1970s, 80s and 90s who were deployed to fight the cartels. So it's counterproductive, not only because of the playbook that's been used, there's an immediate reaction by many of the private militias of the drug cartels at the time, many of whom were defectors from the military and the police, and who also had access to the counterinsurgency playbook. The reason why 
many of these wars, state cartel wars in Mexico, have been so lethal. Keep in mind that over the course of the past 15 years, Mexico has experienced close to a quarter of a million battle deaths in these conflicts. More than 100,000 people have gone missing. More than 4,000 clandestine mass graves have been identified. So we're speaking about levels of atrocity that are significantly higher than what we see in the average civil war. Let's be clear, this is not a civil war. These are criminal wars of different nature in which parts of the state are fighting against parts of the state, which is the very complicated element to understand. And what we've seen in Mexico is that the deployment of the army has followed specifically the kingpin strategy by which the military tries to decapitate these organizations. And this has led to the proliferation of organizations. Mexico has gone from having five major drug cartels in 2005, 2006, to having over 200 criminal organizations that fight all kinds of turf wars for the control of drug trafficking routes, but also for the control of multiple other new illicit economies and have created what we call in the book subnational criminal governance regimes in which lots of violence happens, selective violence against journalists and against Catholic priests and against party candidates and against local authorities and against business leaders. This is research we're conducting with Laura and uh, Nathan uh, Skiging, but also mass violence, forced disappearances, extrajudicial executions. And uh, a lot of this is linked in one way or another, directly or indirectly, to the deployment of the military. Not all the killing can be attributed to the military, but the military stepping into many of these zones has changed dramatically the balance of power and um, has provided incentives for multiple actors to go violent. So there is extensive evidence that war is not the response. And we can explore other responses that we know that have been effective in other countries. Now, considering these findings, thinking in practical terms, what would be some of the critical points of dismantling the collusion between state and non-state actors in this gray zone of criminality? That's also a very important question for which we don't have many answers, but we have a couple of very valuable experiences of countries that have dismantled this type of very complex state criminal structures, that the more protracted these conflicts are, the more complex these structures begin. So these days in Mexico, it would be simplistic only to speak about a gray zone in which specialists in violence, state specialists in violence engage with criminal groups. These are much more complex structures in which you have members of the military, members of the police, but also mayors or people in the public prosecutor's office uh, at the state level or the state level police forces, but also members of the private sectors, members of the business community. So these are very complex structures. And the country that has been most successful at dealing with these structures is Guatemala. And what we know in, in that case, Guatemala, with the assistance of the United Nations and the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, over the course of 12 years, between 2008 and 2019, they dismantled over 70 criminal structures 
including, and this is very shocking for a Mexican audience, the Zetas, the very powerful private militia of the Gulf Cartel, which became a cartel in its own right and expanded internationally, including Guatemala. So the big contrast here is Mexico confronting the Zetas through the counterinsurgency playbook, and that created a bloodbath in many regions of Mexico, specifically in the Northeast. The contrast is Guatemala, they dismantle the Zeta criminal structure, including local landowners, local traffickers, members of the Kaibiles, members of the military. The Kaibiles are the lead forces of the military in Guatemala who led genocide in Guatemala. The Zetas had recruited many of them, members of the business community, members of the police, through a process of investigation and prosecution on the one hand, the public prosecutor's office of Claudia Paz y Paz, uh, working hand in hand with the CICIG, they were able to investigate, expose, press charges against many members of these structures and uh, high risk tribunals in, in Guatemala, which were created in 2010 through exemplary process of judicial action, judges were able to sentence and to dismantle many of these criminal structures. As a, a good friend of mine, Rodrigo Uprimni, Colombian Rodrigo Uprimni, once told me, what many of our countries need is not the deployment of characters such as Rambo. We don't need the military to be deployed, members of elite forces to flight. What we need is Sherlock Holmes. And I think Sisig portrays in a quintessential way, the advantages of investigation and prosecution to dismantle many of these criminal structures. It should be done through judicial processes, but that's not the end of the story because we should hope in many of our societies is to engage into peace-building processes. And that's why we need to think some actors require elite forces of the military and the police and top members of the cartels you need to use investigation, prosecution, and you need to sentence and remove many of these actors through exemplary judicial processes that respect their human rights. But we also know that we need other types of justice mechanisms for other actors. Many of the sicarios, many of the foot soldiers of these wars tend to be forcefully recruited. Many of them are young men from underpoverished areas, from urban and, and, and rural areas. And for them, you need a different type of approach, a more much closer to the approach that the peace-building community advocates, which is when you disarm many of these actors, you need to reintegrate them into society and you need to start thinking about restorative justice and restorative processes. One last question. What is the role of the general population in dealing with large criminal violence? Are there any strategies you have encountered to cope with or resist violence in criminal wars? Well, that's again a, an excellent question and a, and a difficult one to respond. But if we look at the uh, experiences around the world and specifically in Latin America, countries that have prevented the outbreak of these criminal wars or countries that have been very effective at dealing with these protracted criminal wars, they have been able to combine two elements. One is that transitional justice processes succeed and mechanisms of uh, extraordinary justice succeed to the extent that victims, organized victims and uh, human rights NGOs and a human rights community develops from the grassroots, from the bottom up. So no transitional justice process or no process of peace building is possible or succeeds if uh, there's no strong civil society 
on the ground. If you think about the experiences of Argentina or Chile or Peru or Guatemala, Colombia, you have very powerful human rights fronts or networks, national movements that were behind many of these processes. So when you think about a country like Argentina, that is probably one of the most successful ones at creating a national consensus that never again should the atrocities that Argentina experienced in the 1970s should be experienced again by Argentine society. That's the aspiration for many of our societies, to actually instill that national consensus. In Mexico, every week you have massacres. There was very recent in, in, in the municipality of Totoloapan in, in northern Guerrero, a massacre of 27 people. Not many people paid attention to this. That's something we need to look into because when societies keep on pushing the moral frontiers of what's acceptable or not, a massacre of 27 people in Argentina would have, would have invited hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to the street to say, this is not acceptable. Mexican society has been pushing the frontiers of what's morally acceptable. What my good friend Pietro Ameglio calls la frontera moral that cannot be pushed every week farther away of what's acceptable. And we need to create that consensus. It's absolutely crucial to create that consensus from the bottom up. Mexico has uh, Mexican civil society, many of us call it, or identify it as an archipelago in which there's few connections. We need to overcome that archipelago, create those connections. But civil society cannot do or cannot play a significant role in these processes alone if it's not supported by the international community. The international community plays a crucial role. It did play a crucial role in Guatemala, and it plays a crucial role. And by this, I don't only mean governments, I mean international institutions, but also international NGOs and the world civil society to support these processes because, and with this, I, I close, some of the most important challenges of dismantling these criminal structures is that very often those who are in charge of dismantling them are part of them. So when the public prosecutor that is supposed to dismantle these structures is part of these structures, so the member of the police or the member of the military is involved, this is when civil society or the few good agents that are within the system, they need to be empowered. And International participation plays a significant role in changing the internal balance of power and empowering these local actors at the level of civil society or governments, dismantle these criminal structures and um, engaging into long-term processes of peace building. Thank you so much, Guillermo. This was Global Stage by the Kellogg Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Thank you. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. Global Stage.